Celiac disease is an autoimmune disease. It requires genes reacting with the immune system inside the intestines where the bulk of the human immune system resides. Simply put, it's called the gut-associated lymphoid tissue. And that means it can manifest as a gastrointestinal abnormality and extra-intestinally. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Ashley Reaver, and I'm joined by Dr. Gil Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, How to Live a Longer, Healthier Life. We're produced by Insight Tracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Pastore. Dr. Pastore is a practitioner, consultant, and researcher in biomedicine and human nutrition. He holds a PhD from Rutgers University in biomedical informatics, nanomedicine, and clinical informatics, and has an extensive background in nutrition, genetics, biochemistry, and neuroscience. He's a certified nutrition specialist and has had the distinction of counseling professional athletes across baseball, football, hockey, and endurance sports. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. Robert, again, it's a... a Great pleasure having you here, and we had a great discussion in the past. And uh, I would love to learn a, a bit about your uh, background from early age until you decided to become a scientist, and what made you to be a scientist. Uh, thank you, Gil, and it's great to see you again, and I, I love our conversations always. Um, I will start from the beginning, and I promise I will be brief. I was born <laughs> in a borough of New York uh, known as Queens. Um, I was very sick as a child, constantly getting every cold and flu uh, that would be around me. Uh, my parents had a running joke that if I went on the subway and someone 40 to 80 feet from me sneezed or had an obvious cold, I would turn that into bronchitis or walking pneumonia, which did transpire quite often. Um, I actually won the most absenteeism in private Catholic school as a child. <laughs> while also graduating with straight A's. So, <laughs> so at least I had that working for me. Um, I, I continued this trajectory of being sick, being an antibiotic child, which destroyed my microbiome. Um, that progressed in my early teen years into an undiagnosed nonspecific seizure disorder. Um, and then unfortunately, in my uh, mid to late teens towards 19, I developed some arrhythmia abnormalities, specifically VTAC, ventricular tachycardia, and um, atrial fibrillation, which has a very strong risk for stroke. Um, and in an effort to try to be healthy, and my doctor told my mother in one visit, maybe he needs a multivitamin. I read everything, and in the popular press, which we should never do, but this made <laughs> sense, uh, I read that wheat germ could be healthy. So I started adding wheat, wheat germ to my diet on a daily basis and had the absolute worst pinnacle of symptoms and finally manifested with severe gastrointestinal abnormalities. Um, I talked to my doctors. They still couldn't figure out what was wrong. And I remember being in my cardiologist's office. Um, I was on 13 medications at the time. And when he left the room, I took the top page off his prescription pad. And because my fun uh, of and entertainment of reading included Harrison's Principles of Internal Medicine, um, I ordered my first celiac disease very primitive at the time, blood panel on myself. And I'm very happy I included more than just the um, immunoglobulin IgA series of markers, which I've changed since I was diagnosed. At the time of my diagnosis, they had anti-gliadin antibodies, IgA and IgG, which have been replaced with the more accurate tissue transglutaminase and others, antiodomissial antibodies. I can explain all of those backwards and forwards. Um, and long story short, my doctor received my blood work that I had done at a walk-in lab under his name, and I was rushed for an emergency biopsy, um, and, and sure enough, had no villi and microvilli and a severe case of celiac disease. I don't recall my MARSH score, but it had to be like one of the worst four plus. Um, 
And it was quite remarkable understanding in, in my life. I wanted to be the youngest brain surgeon in New York, and it completely changed the way I thought about science and medicine. Um, what really changed my mind completely, Gil, pushing towards becoming a scientist as opposed to a medical doctor, um, was by month six, I was off all of the 13 medications and I had no further seizures. Doctors couldn't explain it. And what was sad at the time is I was told, well, then you clearly didn't have them. <laughs> Can you imagine having seizures that they could measure a seizure when you're having a seizure, but because they went away, clearly I didn't have them. Um, and the same thing transpired with my, my heart. It was a little more dramatic with my heart. I actually rushed to the emergency room because my resting heart rate at the time before diagnosis could exceed 200 beats per minute. And wow. I was medicated being a smart patient, maybe not, but I was young. I didn't stop my heart medication when I got diagnosed with celiac disease because my well-intentioned physician said, there's, there are two separate things, Robert. This is just another disease you have. And I basically overdosed on my medications um, and my blood pressure went extremely low and my pulse rate was bradycardia. I was below 50 beats per minute. Uh, it was quite remarkable. And the only solution was stop all the medication. So that's when I started pursuing after my undergraduate degree, um, studying formally clinical human nutrition, medical nutrition therapy, got my master's degree, um, won the student award uh, for the program, studied under the, the late brilliant Dr. Judith Brooks, who was an expert in understanding gluten's reactions in the human body, how they manifested on a pediatric level more neurologically than gastrointestinal wise. She was one of the first uh, practitioners. Um, she was a registered dietitian slash PhD to identify um, gluteal morphine compounds that could be found in the urine of children on the autism spectrum if they had celiac disease. So basically, uh, simply put, they were actually producing a, an opioid-based chemical due to the immunological reactions they were having towards this peptide um, uh, gliadin, which is one of the two peptides celiac disease patients react to from gluten, gliadin and glutenin, with gliadin being the most deleterious. Uh, so I became a certified nutrition specialist, which is a separate credential after your master's degree. You do your residency, you work in a medical practice. I actually practiced human nutrition and internal medicine, infectious disease, cardiology, and endocrinology. Um, and then I had this great longing for studying biomedicine. And that's what led me to um, the Rutgers campus uh, because they had this amazing program in biomedical informatics uh, with a nanomedicine and clinical informatics tract that focused, you could focus on disease processes and systems. So I was obsessed with how this tiny little protein could do this to me that was supposed to be so innocuous. What else could be in the world of science? And that really was my foray into that, um, that field. Great introduction. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And I'd love to dig in. I'm sure everyone has heard of celiac disease, but perhaps doesn't necessarily know or understand it through that pathway. So could you give yeah. us a, a, a bit of a primer? You definitely touched on some of the important things, but I think in particular, when you brought up um, ways that it manifests, not just in your gastrointestinal tract, but other places. Um, so what is celiac disease and how would we see that? How could we, how could it present? Thank you for that excellent question. And that's the reason I do this. I became an advocate for a, a nonprofit called the Celiac Disease Foundation for patients uh, because celiac disease is an autoimmune disease where the human body starts to attack itself when it is uh, exposed to gluten. Um, so eating the most common foods on the planet, if you ever look where gluten is, it's everywhere. And imagine when I was diagnosed, they had nothing. So <laughs> my, I basically was eating food that you could say, oh, this is a doorstop. No, that's Robert's lunch. Uh, so <laughs> there was no technology at the time. Uh, so celiac disease is an autoimmune disease. It requires genes reacting with the immune system inside the, in, the intestines where the bulk of the human immune system resides. Simply put, it's called the gut-associated lymphoid tissue. And that means it can manifest as a gastrointestinal abnormality and extra intestinally. So there's a whole host of non-classic symptoms that shock people. 
Uh, the reason I published in this field, working with one of the top researchers at the Mayo Clinic named Dr. Joseph Murray, who's a colleague of mine. I love him. He runs the, um, the wing there for gastroenterology and hepatology at Mayo. Um, is the fact that a lot of doctors are just stuck in the intestinal lumen. And I even had a diagnosis as recent as yesterday, and she gave me a printout from an Ivy League medical institution that said, this is a gastrointestinal disease that may cause some vitamin deficiencies. And what shocked me was if you stare at the clinical literature where there's incredible p-values, we know the following. There are diseases where you are medically supposed to test your patient for celiac disease if they have atrial fibrillation, autoimmune hepatitis, bud Terry syndrome, which is an abnormality of the vasculature of the liver that drains blood out of the liver, um, various cancers, glioblastoma, brain cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer, lymphomas, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, shockingly cardiovascular disease, has a greater rate in patients who have celiac disease, um, epilepsy, um, immune thy thyrocytopenia, where you have a thrombo, pardon me, thrombocytopenia, where you have a deficiency of platelets, um, juvenile idiopathic arthritis, uh, microscopic colitis, multiple sclerosis. There's actually an 11 times increase in multiple sclerosis in undiagnosed celiac disease patients. And that's the research of Rodrigo. And I believe that goes back to around 2011. And I could pull the papers for everyone. Um, NASH, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, primary biliary cirrhosis. I promise I'm almost done. Uh, <laughs> rheumatoid arthritis, sarcoidosis, Sjogren's syndrome, systemic lupus erythematosus, thromboembolytic disease, various forms of diabetes, diabetes insipidus, type one diabetes, and uh, kidney stone disease. So that's just a small top of the iceberg of conditions that are directly linked to celiac disease being a cause. And what's sad is there is, we call it in my field, a decade to diagnosis. Mm. It, it's actually 11 years, but we're trying to make it sound cool. Uh, so it takes roughly 10 years to get a diagnosis. I suffered to the best of my memory since age five, and I was finally diagnosed just before I turned 20. That is still a common theme. Mm -hmm. And that's really why I got very aggressively interested in this. Um, my work in connection with a lot of doctors that were working with the American College of Gastroenterology shocked me. There was a paper, um, a survey paper by a brilliant doctor named McCormick, and she published the first questionnaire in 2013 of gastroenterologists being quizzed of their knowledge of celiac disease. And these brilliant doctors did so poorly on it that she was very concerned at an alarming rate. And follow-up studies by at least several other doctors, again, I could give you papers to link to, um, identified similar abnormalities of, of lack of understanding of exactly how celiac disease um, can manifest and more so how to diagnose it, right? I, I meant talked about me being very sick as a young person. I also had an SIGA insufficiency, which has a whole separate set of symptoms. And if you're not screening a patient for an SIGA deficiency, secretory immunoglobulin IGA is an immunoglobulin that is the primary immunoglobulin in the human body that protects us from many different things, even foodborne illness. If you don't have any of that, you have a greater risk of ear infection, pneumonia, sinus infections, so many different types of infections where doctors just are vexed and they think, you know, what else could be going on? You have to include celiac disease as part of the diagnostic criteria. So, Robert, first, it's, it's fascinating that uh, so many diseases are uh, related to celiac. And, and for me, it's like aging. Aging, if, if you think about it, you go older, all the diseases, uh, the chance to capture any disease go significantly higher. So that's a, that's a fair. Yeah. Second, as much as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's not happening in one in a million. There are around 1% of the population or so <laughs> have celiac disease. So it's not uh, something that is uh, very scared. And the, the last one is maybe a, a follow-up question to you. So let's assume that I uh, suspect that I have celiac disease. What are the ways to confirm whether I have celiac disease or I don't. What is the way to diagnose it? I'm so glad you, you brought that up. And if I could first interject, Gil, thank you for that awesome statement. What a lot of people need to understand is celiac disease prevalence is estimated to be one out of 100 people. Um, if you have a first degree relative, your odds can be as low as one out of 10. 
Um, I should say as strong as one out of 10. Um, some data even says that risk may be higher for first degree relatives, even as high as 22% or higher. And that comes from one of my colleagues out of the Mayo Clinic. Um, 60 to 70%, like most autoimmune diseases, it's predominantly appears in women. Uh, and there's a great chance that the, the, the risk of it may be higher in the general population because right now the working number of those undiagnosed and here's something that's kind of dramatic but fun, and I hope people still stay tuned as I'm talking, uh, is that 83% of patients with celiac disease right now in this year are walking around undiagnosed. And now I will discuss how to get a diagnosis because that's actually one of the most important things. And it was the basis of my own research for years. It starts off with understanding the symptomatology, right? Being directed, teaching your doctors what the common symptoms can be and the uncommon symptoms can be, and then making sure you get a diagnosis uh, as promptly as possible, right? There are gastrointestinal manifestations. I talked about diseases that are associated with those. I bet you there's people listening that have a family member that have one of those diseases, a loved one, a friend, a colleague. Please urge them to seek a diagnosis, but do so uh, in a very knowledgeable pathway. One of my favorite stories, Gil, is not even out of my own practice. And when I was in the research laboratory and doing my own research, um, trying to educate physicians in this field, it is from the general public who have reached out to me and said, um, oh my goodness, I read a uh, article you wrote on your website that said what I should do if I think I might have celiac disease. And it starts here. Number one, the first thing you, you should do and say to your doctor, and I can give you a link to this information so no one has to scramble and write notes, is get your total IgA level. Because if you have low IgA in your blood, you need a different path towards diagnosis. It does not mean you cannot be diagnosed. It means you have a more challenging path. And there's a great chance you actually could have a higher risk for celiac disease because low IgA has a 15-fold increased risk in celiac disease patients. Then there's another, I promise I'll mention the blood work, but if I could go in order, then if someone happens to have a level of IgA that matches their age, how will you know that? Well, thankfully, if you have your blood drawn at a licensed laboratory in the United States, there will be your age and a range specific for your age. So if you match your age or you're just below it, there is another separate set of instructions of blood work to get done. And finally, if you're lucky and you're blessed and you have normal or elevated IgA, then you can pass through what I call the traditional pathway towards diagnosis. And if I start there, that would be getting the total IgA, seeing it's normal or elevated, and then the physician should either do it either at the same time, and we don't want to waste money, we want to be careful with economics, of course, after getting that knowledge of the IgA, they then should measure what's known as a tissue transglutaminase IgA antibody. And based on that result, we then will have another path of clinical decision-making to make. If someone is greater than 10, and that is the baseline here in the United States, it differs in other countries, but if there's uh, 10 units per, per milliliter or greater, we basically push that patient immediately towards a biopsy. The range is four to 10. If someone is lower on that spectrum, let's say they're between four and 10, I don't know, they score a six or a seven. I could tell you, I'm going to send them towards a more sensitive path of blood testing. I'm going to send them for what's called a DAGL and an EMA, and that would be gliadin deamidated antibody IgA and anti-endomysial antibody. Uh, if that is positive, either one of those are positive, like if their D-gliadin is um, greater than 20 units, I'm going to send that patient towards a biopsy. If the D-gliadin is less than 20 units, but they have a positive EMA, I'm going to send them towards a biopsy. I know you're probably thinking, what if those are equivocal? And the doctor says, I really don't know. I'm then going to do some genetic testing. Then I'm going to see, do they even carry the genes? Because the genes are not diagnostic on their own. About 35% of the population has the genes that can cause celiac disease. But we need the genes to be 
positive for celiac disease, period, right? Those human leukocytic antigen uh, genes, uh, HLA-DQ2.5 and their subtypes, HLA-DQ2 and DQ8, those bind with the immune system reaction and create the disease itself. So if I find the patient is equivocal on that path to either one of those uh, antibodies and has the genes, I then feel comfortable sending them for a biopsy, which in our country is the gold standard for diagnosis. And notice I keep saying that because there's a different view. Um, for example, uh, the European um, uh, gastroenterology divisions and, and various colleges focus directly on a benchmark for serology. They'll say if you're 10 times the upper limit for a TTGIGA, they will just make the diagnosis of celiac disease in the absence of a biopsy. And I am on the side of the American College of Gastroenterology, what my colleagues, uh, Dr. Joseph Murray um, recommends and my own research recommends is getting that definitive diagnosis. Uh, and I can discuss the reasons why, but um, probably the most primary one is this is a very serious lifelong disease. I have this disease for 33 years. You have to take it seriously every minute of the day. Um, I'm not being a martyr, but I'm saying no matter what I do, I have to make sure I'm eating gluten-free because it's not just I'm going to have a gastrointestinal upset. I am absolutely increasing my risk towards cancer. And that's why I feel this topic is so, like you mentioned, Gil, so eloquently, why it's so appropriate for longevity uh, podcast is this disease robs us of time. It robs us of quality of life and it can truncate our lives in many ways. We didn't even talk about how it increases free radical damage, how it can increase the production of 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, which are DNA fragments, and that can shorten our telomeres, which is against aging. So this is really the basis. And it's been my mission to do something about this because so many patients are walking around wounded. Um, so it's a very, very serious condition. And I could fill in the blanks on those other uh, scores if you wanted me to, uh, but I do know it's, it's a drawn out dialogue. So I'm more than happy to give you those notes in writing for the listening audience, whatever you prefer. And for those biopsies, that seems like we're the endpoints in so many things. What are you looking for in those biopsies? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, and you're looking for destruction of the villi and microvilli. You're looking to see that there's actually no villi and microvilli are these little tiny finger-like projectiles that when we consume food and our immature digestive enzymes known as zymogens, they maturate on the exposure of a specific unfolded uh, protein known as serine. That's an amino acid. It's very cool, by the way. Um, and that matures those immature digestive enzymes. And then we make more digestive enzymes. And then we start to digest and absorb what we consume. And we want to nourish ourselves with an excellent, healthy diet. In celiac disease, those villi and microvilli are blunted, or in my case, there are none. Mm -hmm. So foodstuffs path completely through the intestinal lumen. And the main site of abnormality is the first part of the small intestine called the duodenum, which makes up around 7 to 11 inches, depending on the individual's unique physiology. What's really cool is if you unfold the duodenum, because it has tons of folds, it is the size of a regulation tennis court. Um, so it is this massive surface area of absorption, and we can become very deficient. But what's more important is we get a separation of intestinal tight junction cells, which are supposed to be stacked together very tightly. Because in medicine, and this may shock the listening audience, but it's true, from mouth to anus is outside the body. Nothing's supposed to just directly get in our blood. We're supposed to process everything, digest everything, filter it with immunology, make sure we're not consuming something that could kill us, send that to the portal vein and to the liver, package things up neatly, and then it gets into the circulation. So if there is a breach of that intestinal lining, which is known as intestinal tight junctions, and we call it dysfunction, that transpires in celiac disease, and that's why manifestation can transpire extra-intestinally, meaning outside of the intestinal lumen, and someone could have hypothyroidism, etc. Growing up, one of my cousins, before she eventually was diagnosed with celiac disease, but all I remember growing up is she could only eat cheese puffs because they were made of corn, and she did it. <laughs> Like that was all she would walk around this big tub. She didn't know why. She just knew that that was the only thing that she could consume that didn't make her feel wow. bad. Fast forward 10 years, she finally found out she had celiac disease. Thank goodness. I'm so happy to hear that. Um, okay. So we, I feel like we went through a lot right there. Thank you so much for those super detailed questions. Um, oh my goodness. It's my pleasure. 
Gil, do you want to a- ask any follow-ups on celiacs? Because I don't want to pivot too yeah. quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one follow-up question is uh, about the absorption of uh, macro and micronutrients. So you, yes. you said that they, uh, basically the patient uh, lose the microvilli and the, yes. the, the issue with the tight junction. I assume that they have some deficiency. So can you elaborate about that? Yes, there are very common series of deficiencies that can appear in celiac disease patients. And to be very honest, Gil, it's basically anything, no holds barred. When I work up a celiac disease patient, I test for basically every nutrient we need to be normal, functional human beings. So that's well over 40. I'm really going deep into every single amino acid that we need, particularly the essential and conditionally essential amino acids. All fat-soluble vitamins can be lost minerals that are so important for our health. The Probably the number one mineral that becomes deficient, particularly in the pediatric population, is iron. So you'll see iron deficiency anemia that cannot be treated, meaning it's refractory. So mm-hmm. even though you're giving the, the patient iron, it is still showing up if the patient's deficient. And I still don't understand with a point of frustration why that's not examined further. We see it in hypovitaminosis D, which is a clinical deficiency of vitamin D. I have seen celiac disease patients with a vitamin D score of seven. If you're familiar with ranges, that is appallingly low. I mean, really, the the general laboratories now even have a cutoff at 30, which I'm not thrilled with. I'm a big fan of Michael Hollick, by the way, and I love the research he has done and studied everything he has written on the topic of vitamin D. But celiac disease patients are well below that range. Um, so all fat-soluble vitamins, many water-soluble vitamins, there could be an, an interference with intrinsic factor. So B12 can become deficient. We need the intrinsic factor to allow B12 to be absorbed from the stomach through the small intestine. Uh, so that can cause a lot of neurological symptoms. You'll see an overlay between nutritional deficiencies and true pathophysiology and symptomatology. And I find that very interesting. Uh, if you're looking for a very unique one, I received a letter from a woman that said, my doctor would not listen to me. I thought I had celiac disease, but I'm obese. And I handed him Dr. Pastore's article. And I don't know this person. This was just something on social media. And she said, humor me. And he read my article. And thankfully, he said, well, this guy's not crazy. I'm going to test this patient for celiac disease. Sure enough, she had celiac disease. Now, how could a symptom uh, of celiac disease be obesity? Very simply, there's three definite pathways and more that are being analyzed now. One, there's actually a malabsorption of the formation of carnitine, a nutrient that drives beta oxidation, how the human burns fat cells in the power pack of the cell known as the mitochondria, mitochondrion plural. So imagine losing your fuel cells to burn fat. Number two, we know celiac disease presents with abnormalities of the thyroid gland from an autoimmune perspective. I've met, especially being trained in endocrinology by one of the greats, uh, Dr. Philip Felig, um, I, I've met so many patients diagnosed with hypothyroidism and no one ever looked at the immunology that's potentially associated with it, such as thyroid antibodies, right? Why is that not looked at? Because they're very commonly found in celiac disease patients. So if you find thyroid abnormalities and then you find Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune sluggish thyroid, even Graves' disease is associated with celiac, but you then should be running, as I mentioned, all the comorbidities, a celiac disease panel because you'll never fully treat the patient. Sluggish thyroid would make the patient not only overweight, they would also risk of malabsorbing their medication that they need to get their thyroid into the accurate range. Mm-hmm. So you find these paper trails or breadcrumbs, pun intended, breadcrumbs, uh, of patients that have these diagnoses, but they can't get to, they'll say, oh, but I'm on thyroid medication. And then you look at them and say, why is your TSH five? Mm-hmm. That's terrible. You know, you're still hypothyroid, but you're on 120 microgram, 125 micrograms of synthroid. Clearly there's a disconnect. The last connection is the inflammasome which I'm sure you're all familiar with, but the inflammasome is this total immunology storm that we know disrupts how the human processes calories. So if you have this capsase-1-driven inflammasome that's associated with autoimmune conditions, it brings with it the comorbidity of obesity or weight gain. So from what I heard from you, it's a it's astonishing how many uh, deficiencies celiac disease a patient uh, has. And I think yes. that uh, if uh, uh, something like InstaTracker can be very beneficial for, uh, let's say, healthy, normal person, 
for someone with celiac, it can be 10 times even more important to uh, use it and uh, be sure that you are a, have a balance of macro and micronutrients, which is uh, very interesting. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so thank you for uh, lighting our uh, eyes for that. And uh, uh, Ashley, please, let's continue. Yeah, please. Absolutely. All right, so we're going to switch a little bit, change gears here, just okay. because you do have so much experience working with individuals. <laughs> please, um, If we dive in deeper onto celiac disease, let's see, we know individuals with celiacs should eat gluten-free. Um, yes. Are there foods other than kind of obvious ones that typically contain gluten? And what about surprise things that people wouldn't necessarily think about? Uh, I've been surprised by, by many things in my own life. Uh, I have, I have to speak to every chef if I go to a restaurant, for example, and I have to make sure they really understand it. When I traveled to Paris, bless my wife's heart, she actually translated everything in French and I had a little laminated card that I handed to everyone. And of course, I always try to be proactive and call ahead. Uh, but I've been, we call it punked in my world, uh, with gluten by, by people who thought something was gluten-free. So that's why I unfortunately have to, I'm overly apologetic when I mentioned my condition. I've had chefs that are Michelin star trained come out and say, yes, yes, we understand gluten-free specifically. I cannot take them just on that and I have to go over with them. So you understand first, everything with me is a clinical decision support system mentality. <laughs> so I say, the first thought is brow, barley, rye, contaminated oats and wheat. And then each of those can have children. So wheat can be triticale, it can be kamut, it can be spelt. And then I had a chef go, oh, spelt. I thought spelt was gluten-free. So I had someone punk me with some spelt when they did not understand. And that's when I got more into my, my dialogue uh, as I was interviewing chefs for cooking me food. Um, it really is a very serious condition if you speak to those who are diagnosed. And it's why I love meeting people who are diagnosed. I love giving them a big hug. Uh, because it's such a, it's such a mutual understanding and suffering that we experience. So typically, if you could get past that first brow understanding and understand that oats are generally gluten free, but they're always to save money with agribusiness, um, processed on the same machinery as gluten containing grains, they need to be standardly certified as gluten free. And if you have celiac disease, um, I have no connection with her financially, but I'm a huge fan of a registered dietitian with a master's degree named Trisha Thompson. I even quoted her in my publications because I consider her the police for the celiac disease community. She will purchase gluten-free items, items labeled gluten-free, and send them to a third-party laboratory to be tested for the presence of gluten and then blow the proverbial whistle at them and report it to the FDA. She has flagged multiple items. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that to scare anyone, but it's great because every time she can, she gets, catches someone in the act, our government gets more and more strict and stringent upon that. Um, the last thing is definitely, if you're on prescription medication, speak with your pharmacist because believe it or not, there are some prescription drugs that do indeed contain gluten and no one's really clear on it. And the Celiac Disease Foundation, a nonprofit in Washington, D.C., is pushing the government to make it a law that you either disclose it or, but of course, remove gluten completely because it is, it is really no longer necessary. You might be wondering why it is in a medication, and it's a very interesting answer. It is one of the best mechanisms to delay the absorption of a medication, mm -hmm. creating something to be time-released, which should give you a little clue, Gil, I'm trying to be non-biased, about how harmful uh, gliadin can be and how slow it is to digest, particularly in those of us with celiac disease. So, Robert, a lot of uh, a buzz today talking about gluten-free and uh, a lot yes. of people that don't have uh, celiac disease are uh, mm. consuming it. And yes. my question to you is, do you believe that that's a good diet for someone that doesn't have uh, celiac disease or mm. uh, the majority of us, the 99% of the population, should continue to uh, consume gluten-containing food? I, and, you know, I, I really appreciate that question, Gil, because this is where you'll appreciate that I'm a well-trained PhD um, and I don't present with bias. I believe that people should eat a healthy whole foods diet and, and not change it unless they're diagnosed with a specific condition that proves that that is not required to be a part of their diet. 
and the zenith of that, and thank you so much for, for letting me be a part of your awesome forum, is celiac disease. It is the no only known medical condition that a food can cause a specific disease itself and then a whole separate set of comorbidities. My fear about the gluten-free um, rage is the fact that many of people with celiac, I was going to say my people, with celiac <laughs> disease, if I may be so bold, will unfortunately miss out on their diagnosis mm -hmm. because everything I mentioned only works within the vacuum of consuming gluten. I test myself multiple times a year. I'm sure you both could imagine that. I need to do that, right? Because a symptom of me being exposed to gluten is an actual disease, MS, cancers. My father died of, of cancer at 50. Um, that's a very big deal for me to identify this. So I test myself to make sure I wasn't inadvertently exposed to gluten because you all heard my story that my gastrointestinal symptoms happened after the fact, right? So I'm negative. Does that mean I'm cured? I test myself for all of the aforementioned blood work that I discussed today, the DGLs, all of it, and I'm negative. So that means I'm not exposed. It doesn't mean I'm cured. So if I went into a doctor's office thinking I had celiac disease, but I read on the internet or an influencer said I should not be consuming gluten, I will be negative on all testing. My biopsy will be negative, and I could end up with a disease later on in life. So yeah. that concerns me. Um, do I believe there are other conditions? Yes. There's some publications that are definitely valid, and I do identify in my own work something called non-celiac gluten intolerance, and it is diagnosable through several methods, and one of my favorites is adopted by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and it's very simple. It's if you have a patient or you know someone who is exposed to an isolate, an isolated food, let's say a peanut. If I say, if I eat peanuts, my mouth itches. I'm not going to die and I feel, but just it itches. You should do that in isolation three different times with at least three days separated between each exposure. So if I have irritable bowel and I've been eating gluten, I'm tested for celiac disease, I'm negative. My doctor would never do a biopsy. That would be malpractice, but I'm tested like crazy. I'm followed up. I'm negative, but I have actual symptomatology. And I think maybe gluten is a problem. I then should try it or eggs or whatever the food is. Try it in isolation on three separate occasions. Talk to your doctor. Talk to at least, if not your doctor, who's hopefully knowledgeable in clinical nutrition. Look for a doctor with a certified nutrition specialist degree, a master's degree, a registered dietitian, MS, someone that really understands food allergy or intolerance or sensitivities. And if you have three separate occasions of symptoms that are really negatively impacting your life, try eliminating that food for a period of time. That to me is a very logical thing we should be doing um, uh, to, to better our own health. And if you really want to dig very deep and you think a food is bothering you, also test to see how well you are absorbing. There's nothing wrong with measuring your vitamin D, mm -hmm. right? If you're drinking a ton of milk and you're deficient in vitamin D, something's wrong. If you're taking a vitamin D pill every single day at like, I don't know, 5,000 international units and you're deficient in vitamin D, something is wrong. Seek help from a specialist that can help you identify the abnormality. So I don't believe in fad diets. I believe in excellent clinical nutrition for the individual. Um, I believe in a realm of we should be choosing whole foods primarily. My only problem with gluten outside my own disease is I feel wheat is in the most processed foods and food groups on the planet because it is very cheap. So you'll find highly refined wheat and white flour products, which in and of themselves have so many risk factors for um, poor health, uh, that that's my biggest concern. Sometimes I do fear that people take gluten, you know, saying I am gluten-free less seriously for someone that has celiac disease because it is such a yeah. popular yeah, fad, fad, maybe not the right word, but you no, know, I understand so many people say that they are without real clinical implications of it. It's I'm glad you said that because it's actually one of the things I say to this day when I sit down in a restaurant and I explain to the server and if I could speak to the chef or the, the sous chef about my condition, I say, look, this is not a fad. Um, I, I don't I wish I didn't have this problem. This is an actual disease that I have. Can you please help me? 
Uh, and when you approach it that kind-hearted, uh, and then I tip really well, uh, that <laughs> you get, you get really great, uh, help. Uh, but, and it's not in, if somebody wants to eat that way and they're comfortable, I'm fine with it, but I worry. And, and thank you. I hope you can understand my concern. 83% of those with celiac disease are not diagnosed. They've done reverse studies where they captured blood tests from the United States military from around World War II. And these people are, unfortunately, as life works, deceased people. And they measured their blood. And sure enough, they were positive mm -hmm. to what would be celiac disease risk markers that would warrant a biopsy in someone who's walking around on the planet. So it's like missing chances and opportunities for diagnoses. Uh, when I talk to a patient the very first time, I want them doing everything they're doing. And then I want to test them and analyze. So I will tell you this, I cast a big net. And I think I cast a bigger net than most practitioners that I meet, no offense to anyone else, because I've suffered for so many years and I was blown off by so many specialists that I always made the determination if I was going to be a practitioner in any field, even just clinical nutrition, and there's nothing wrong with that. I have that specialty and wear it with a badge of honor by CNS. Um, I wanted to treat the patient with the respect that I didn't receive. So I lead with, I want to look under every stone that I can and that I'm allowed to look to make sure I have a definitive understanding of the health and the nutrition no, nutritional status of my patient so that they can reach wellness. Because in the absence of nutrition, you're not getting anywhere. You you so, need so, 40 plus nutrients just to live. Sure. You know? <laughs> yeah. So Robert, following that, uh, as we yes. said, 99% of the population don't have a celiac disease. And uh, uh, I assume that some of them uh, will listen to this episode. So the question that I would like to ask is, is there any recommendation, uh, a nutrition recommendation for uh, improving gut health for people that are healthy and doesn't have uh, celiac disease? Yeah, it's, it's a tough general question because I do find patients with intolerances. I find patients with, I guess I would say step one, identify if you have an actual intolerance, like lactose intolerance. Identify if you have a sensitivity. Please remember back when autism was first diagnosed, it was a singular entity. Please then think back further to the 50s when food allergies were thought of only as true anaphylaxis or skin rash or hive type reactions. I believe similarly to autism, there's a spectrum to allergy. So really identify if your patient, if the patient or the individual has a sensitivity or, or intolerance. And the great way to do that is number one, is the patient eating very well and healthy for all intents and purposes? Number two, what is their nutritional status? Are they deficient in any key nutrients they need to live an optimal life? Um, are there any biomarkers that are very abnormal? Hemoglobin A1C, highly sensitive C-reactive protein. And I know your audience understands these, so I'm not defining them, but please let me know if you need me to. Um, various markers in human nutrition that are easily measurable in blood, the omega-3 index, which I love, these really important factors. If there's something wrong there and, and normalizing the diet to include a richer source of the nutrient the patient uh, contains that, that nutrient and the patient is still deficient after they consume it, then I really believe in a very thorough investigation. And that's for the general conversation. In my practice, I will see the patient and I'm working them up as far as they will let me possibly go so that I can identify other such reactions. I believe in uh, FDA approved analyses. I believe in if a patient comes to me and say, my stomach is bothering me, I will measure immunoglobulin IgEs towards specific foods because it's been clinically tested. I've done skin testing in university environments. Um, I believe in other immunological testing that has been published and is very new in the clinical literature, but more and more and more studies are popping up, like Yale School of Medicine published leukocyte activation against specific foods, resulted in an 87% remission of irritable bowel syndrome, and that study was published in late 2017. Um, and that's out of Yale School of Medicine researchers, so past peer review, and, and I've watched it be reproduced. So I feel, um, and then the pinnacle, of course, is the least amount of processed foods as possible, adequate fiber to the patient's ability to tolerate it, uh, understanding your microbiome. And I know that's all still very new, 
Uh, but I had the, the pleasure of studying over at Rutgers campus where we have some of the best research and, and data on the microbiome project. There's terabytes of data on microbiome. They, during the pandemic, the FDA approved a drug that came out of Rutgers that was really specific probiotics to treat the comorbidity of COVID with type 2 diabetes. So I love looking at the microbiome, mapping an individual's microbiome, um, and trying that three-day test. If you think a food bothers you, isolate it and try it three separate occasions, and you will not die if you <laughs> stop eating that food for a short period of time to see if you're not crazy, right? But always share this with a specialist so that you're not doing this on your own. I think that's an important key too. There is unfortunately no quick sexy test for figuring out if you're sensitive or intolerant. It really does take you yeah. putting in some work and making a spreadsheet or something like that to track yeah, your symptoms. Yes. And it's important to share that with a specialist who then can choose the right test, right? Like I have cases where the patient presents with itchy mouth and some skin rashes, and those are predominantly, you know, immunoglobulin E reactions, uh, and they'll say, but I think this food bothers my belly, but my reaction could be up to a day or so later. That's a great time to test them, you know, and there's great FDA validated tests that are accurate. And if you see something pop up on that, it, it more than likely is causing a problem and it should be avoided for a period of time. But no tests are 100% accurate. Did you see even my description of celiac disease diagnostic criteria was multifactorial? It, it is a diagnosis in concert. There's always run from the doctor who thinks it's a straight line and a simple discussion. Even a biopsy in the absence of serology is questionable because a biopsy requires human eyes and thought, and that is fallible. So we want all the data we possibly can have combined together to come to the best conclusion for the individual. I think that's also an important piece too. And listening to this... <laughs> All of our listeners, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to jump and immediately cut out gluten, but maybe oh. finding resources <laughs> on your website to go and get the appropriate type of testing so you can figure that out. <laughs> That's my first sentence. I believe it's the first. It's in the first paragraph. I wrote this article <laughs> called, uh, what do I do if I think I have celiac disease? And it says, do not stop eating gluten. <laughs> Run as fast as you can to a very knowledgeable licensed practitioner, hopefully a gastroenterologist and a clinical nutritionist is hopefully on staff and explain. I even said, print this out because <laughs> there, there, look, there is some authority there. You know, I, I didn't want to be an influencer. I didn't even know that existed, by the way, until like my last, what, five or six years on this planet. Um, I've always thought influencers were those who came out of major universities with shiny wallpaper. <laughs> Uh, boy, was I wrong. <laughs> so those, those are the, that, that's what I feel. If we start from that point, then we prevent patients from having really going down rabbit holes that they'll miss a diagnosis, right? They'll miss a diagnosis. Or I've had patients come to me and go, I was diagnosed with celiac disease. And the first thing I'll say is, wow, that is basically impossible. How could you say that, Dr. Pastori? Oh, uh, you're negative for HLA DQ 2.5 and DQ 8 and all the subtypes. And the laboratory that tested those is a tissue typing laboratory for uh, transplants. So I'm pretty sure they're accurate. Mm -hmm. I will call them. Uh, but you can't have the disease if you don't have the genotypes. So therefore, what was this diagnosis based on? When was your biopsy? Oh, well, I talked to my chiropractor or whoever or my, you know, meditation specialist. And they said <laughs> that I had celiac disease. And I know I'm, I'm trying not to be derogatory. I really am not. And then the patient gave up gluten. Now, the problem is they could be an at-risk target because then if you listen to their story, they say, and by the way, these are all real stories I've heard. Oh, well, my father had celiac disease, but he's passed away. So we really don't know those medical records. That's a high at-risk target. That's a patient that could be one out of 10. Giving up gluten would prevent that patient from getting a real diagnosis. And that's damaging and more harmful, potentially developing a serious disease. Mm. I've had many patients that were diagnosed with celiac disease after their small intestinal bowel cancer resection surgery. And the pathology lab identified the type of cancer, the location of the cancer, and then at the same time identified celiac disease. So that is not in common, uncommon. I wish it was uncommon, but that does present in the celiac disease community. A wealth of information and knowledge. Thank you oh, so much for you. sharing all of this. And hopefully there you. are plenty of people listening that you know can find resources or answers 
or at least a place to start that's reputable. Thank you. I really appreciate the chance to talk about this. Thank you. Yeah. One of our, our favorite ways to end every episode is just to ask if there's something that you do in particular to improve your lifespan or your health span. You've shared lots of things. Um, but yes. as a general tip to our um, to our listeners, is there anything that you would like to pop in there? Yes, I am. I I, I really am obsessed with longevity. Uh, having had a father who passed away very young and coming from unfortunately bad genetics, and everybody heard the start of my life. I'm very proud, fifty three year old with soon to be five year old daughter. So that proves it's never too late. Um, I keep my mind young by constantly taking classes. I think that's one of the most important things we could do. I try to put myself in something that I'm interested in that I'm uncomfortable about, like learning to program a computer language uh, when I wrote my first thesis on a typewriter. Imagine that leap. (laughs) So find something that's extremely complicated that you but are interested in and pursue it. Eat excellent for your body. Find a specialist that can help you. Uh, eat excellent for you. And you could track that through specific biomarkers, which is one thing that I love you guys do. Um, monitor your hemoglobin on A1C, monitor your fasting glucose, monitor specific metabolic markers that your doctor may not really think is super important unless you had a specific concierge physician that's focused on anti-aging. Um, drink the least amount you possibly can of alcohol. Uh, so sorry, but it is a fact. There's now no medical level of alcohol that you could say is good for you. You will slow the aging process by putting the brakes on that. Trust me, there are some tears when I stopped my 5 p.m. martinis <laughs> early in my career. Uh, even though I drank less, I why would I want to make my brain age more rapidly? And then lastly, make sleep a militant priority. Awesome, awesome tips. Thank you so much for your time, your knowledge, the conversation today, Dr. Pastore. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was such an honor and pleasure, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And we look forward to exploring the research in the field of longevity each month with you and the leading scientists. For more info, please go to www.insidetracker.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker, a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit InsideTracker.com slash podcast.